Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would just respond to a patron email, an, an interesting one. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a professor and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. This uh, email is from patron Ryan. And if you haven't already, please become a patron of the podcast. This That's not part of the email. <laughs> that's just me saying, if you haven't already, become a patron of the podcast and become a part of our little team of deserving listeners. All right, this, this email is from patron Ryan. I'm a longtime listener and recent patron of the podcast. I love the great work you guys are doing and even assigned certain episodes to my students as extra credit. I can't remember if it was the psychology myths episode or the defense mechanisms episode, but I remember that conversion disorder was brought up. This reminded me of an encounter I had, and I figured you'd be interested in it. Prior to me returning to get my PhD, well, la-ti-da, patron Ryan, PhD, good for you. Prior to me returning to get my PhD, I, I was a master's level counselor in a psychiatric outpatient program and was on call with the emergency department. One of my calls was about a woman who inexplicably, <laughs> inexplicably, who inexplicably lost the ability to walk and was functionally paralyzed below the waist. Numerous medical consults ruled out any physical explanations. This patient was quite depressed and told me about how she had a gambling and compulsive spending problem which led to her family cutting her off from her funds. She became depressed and slowly started losing functioning of her legs. With antidepressant medication and therapy, she eventually started walking again. Also, I loved your episode on the study you conducted about seasonal, about seasoned psychotherapist experience of difficult clinical moments. I wonder if you've thought about publishing it, if you haven't already. It would, it would make a great contribution to the literature, in my opinion. Well, thank you, Patreon Ryan. That's nice of you to say. And I always love getting emails like this from clinicians of stories uh, because, you know, it's a very interesting story. You're saying, you know, you, you, this, this woman comes in, she's paralyzed, and she is evaluated medically, and they can't figure out why she's paralyzed. And then... Some astute clinician decides to refer this person to a counselor or a psychiatrist or whomever, and then patron Ryan uh, starts talking with her, and they put her on antidepressants, and they give her some talk therapy, and lo and behold, her her you know her paral her paralysis uh, uh, subsides or recedes or goes away. So you know it's just a fascinating story. It sounds uh, crazy to some people, I'm sure, but to us in our field, it's it's uh, understandable because the mind can do all sorts of things, and stress and trauma can do all sorts of things, including paralysis. But anyway, uh, at the end of your email, you're 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 asking me, uh, am, am I thinking about getting it published? My my dissertation was on seasoned psychotherapist experience of difficult clinical moments. You can listen to that episode if you want. And I have considered publishing it, and people will often say I should publish it, either as a book or as a journal article. And to tell you the truth, I have a kind of funny relationship with publishing. I am supposed to be very interested in it as a professor, 
uh, professors are supposed to be always publishing, right? Publish or perish. But at my university, we focus mainly on the training of therapists rather than on publishing. We're encouraged to publish and we're given time to, to do so. But it, we won't lose our job if we don't publish. And we don't really have a huge culture of, of publishing. People do it, but, but some people don't. And so that's one factor. Uh, another factor is that it's very time-consuming to get published. And although it's probably not as time-consuming to take a dissertation, just reduce it down to the length of a journal article and just start you know, shopping it around to different uh, journals – and as I say it out loud, I'm thinking, why haven't I done it? But I, I've, I know a lot, I have a lot of colleagues that publish a lot, and I just have witnessed the frustration and the time that they put into it. And I have a limited amount of time left on this planet, and I have a lot of things I, I want to do, but there are certain things that have to not be pursued in the interest of doing other things like this podcast, for instance. I love doing the podcast and consider it to be not only just personally fun, but also it's a publishing of sorts. I, I'm getting word out there to people about things that uh, I believe will help the profession and help humanity. <laughs> I know that sounds completely grandiose and ridiculous, but that's the purpose of publishing. When, when you publish something in a journal article, in a journal, you're trying to increase, trying to add new knowledge to the field, and you're also just trying to, uh, in my opinion, you're trying to make the world a better place. You know, you're by adding knowledge, presumably, it will lead to our ability to reduce suffering and to further our our race of of humans. And so, uh, this podcast uh, does that. It's not traditional, and it's not respected in the academic world for sure. But in essence, that's, um, that's what I'm doing. And I, I'm going to reach far more people on this podcast than I ever would if I were to, you know, for instance, let me just sort of break it down. Like if I were to, uh, uh, you know, do a deep dive on a particular topic, like I often will do for this podcast anyway. And then at the end of that deep dive, I start writing something and I conduct research and I, uh, start shopping it around to different journals and begging them to to put it in their journal and just be, becoming you know rejected and because I, I I know people that have excellent articles that and research uh, teams of excellent psychologists and other researchers who have have conducted excellent research on things like resilience and and other kinds of things and they cannot manage to get it published anywhere. And it's just, it's, it's terrible. It's, it's like you're begging someone to publish it. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And so, and there's a lot of elitism and just a lot of silliness. But anyway, so I could probably spend six months of my free time doing that and still not get it published. And usually it's, it's more than that, you know, but, but say six months of like dedicated uh, free time. Well, think about how many podcast episodes, good quality podcast episodes I could produce in six months with that time or, you know, 12 months or whatever Yeah, I could the, and, and so, so match that up with how many people are going to read that journal article. If I get it published, you know, a small amount of people will, will put their eyes on that. 
Whereas the podcast gets presumably listened to by tens of thousands of people, including the lay public, which is not that you're odd. You know, when you publish something in a, in a journal, the lay public rarely get reads that clinicians rarely read it for that matter, but, and researchers rarely come across it. But, but so, so, you know, the spirit behind publishing and psychology, I feel like I'm, I'm achieving that goal in, in the podcast. But anyway, Having said all that, uh, publishing in journals is an absolutely worthy activity to do. For those that do it, it's it's a it's a invaluable uh, process in our field and in other disciplines because it has mechanisms in it that uh, provide a sort of uh, you know checks and balances. For instance, when I do this podcast, I don't run it by anybody before I publish it usually. And so it's just me and my own biases and my own foibles making a podcast. Whereas when you publish in a journal, you have lots of eyes on it. You scrutinize it yourself. The journal will have editors that will look it over and check your math sometimes, maybe even look at your data and say, oh, you know, you made a mistake here. Go back to the drawing board and and uh, work on this and then come back. And so... When something's in a journal, in general, this is absolutely not true all the time if you really look into it, but in general, the 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 practice and the culture is such that once it gets published in a journal, journal especially the highly respected ones, you can have it, it's 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 been vetted, and it isn't just some guy in a room yammering into a microphone. It's it's actually. Um, you know, legit in a, in a sense, I don't have good words for that, but, but so, you know, I, I'm not going to say that the podcast is the same as that at all. Cause it's not at all, but, um, yeah. So, but to answer your question, yes, I, I, I should get it. I should probably get it published because when it's a dissertation, it only has a limited amount of eyes on it. And if I manage to get it um, into a journal, it's, it's more likely to be seen by other researchers and referenced by the researchers and stuff. And, and the, the findings of that study, I think, are useful for our field in that it normalizes therapists' reactions to difficult moments. Uh, and, you know, it humanizes therapists and says, it's okay that you have freakouts as a, as a therapist when a client presents a difficult situation for you. But anyway, uh, getting to your conversion order, conversion disorder thing, I thought I might just do a little bit of talk about conversion disorder and the history. Conversion disorder, for those of you that don't know, is when psychological stress manifests in a physical manner. So, uh, so you know, you're, you're really stressed out about, you know, your job and you develop blindness. Uh, so because of a psychological stress or trauma, you have a, a physiological symptom as a result. Uh, in essence, you're converting psychological stress into a physical manifestation. Freud coined the term long ago, and basically he believed that psychic stress is defensively converted into a somatic symptom because the ego doesn't have a way of, of functionally expressing uh, the feeling that needs to be expressed. That's just in a nutshell. Conversion disorder 
is seen today often as numbness in a part of the body or or blindness, like I said, or paralysis of a particular part of the body, loss of speech or a strange pain in a part of the body. You know, as I was saying earlier, we, we, you can never underestimate the power of the mind to do strange things, particularly when it's stressed out. And one of the manifestations of, of stress is to have a very distinct physiological symptom. And when you ask the person that has converted their stress into blindness, when you, when you do tests on them, they're functionally blind. They're not faking it. Or when they're paralyzed from the waist down, even though it's, uh, quote unquote, you know, what often is called psychosomatic, but that's not a helpful term. It's a better term is psychogenic or, or conversion. And it's, uh, it's real. It's, you know, it's not, they're not faking it just be, just because it's from psychological stress doesn't mean that it's, that it doesn't exist. It's, it totally exists. The paralysis is real and the patient doesn't have any control over that. It's, it's the unconscious doing, doing its work. So also never underestimate the power of culture in different cultures. Conversion disorder shows up in with different prevalence, meaning that or speculating, you know, we can speculate that in different cultures, different uh, ideas are spread throughout the culture non-verbally that suggest to the subconscious or the unconscious that uh, different ways of defending against difficult feelings. For instance, there are, I don't know that much about it, but there's people in Southeast Asia, I believe, who, men who believe that their penises are gone. They believe, you know, it's, I, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but I remember reading somewhere that uh, there is a whole mental disorder in Southeast Asia that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world in which men, when presumably when they're stressed or, tra- or traumatized, they will have a delusion that their penis has been taken by someone else. Uh, I don't know if it's like a magical kind of thinking or something, but they will look down into their crotch and they won't see a penis, even though there is a penis there. And there's a whole kind of mental health industry around that, I think, in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, I think. Anyway, so that that all could be wrong. But the point is, is that... In different cultures, you will find different rates of conversion disorder, different times. I, I believe, although the research you know, can't really look into this because uh, over time we haven't conducted this sort of research very well, but conversion disorder seems to be something that was prevalent in the Western world 100 years ago, much more than it is today. People today, when they're stressed out, have other ways of culturally expressing their stress, Whereas 100 years ago, uh, converting it into blindness or paralysis was more prevalent because you just had this idea of that's what you do when you're stressed out. And again, it's not a choice that people make. It's not like, oh, this is the allowed cultural way of of expressing stress. No, it's, it's unconscious. You pick up on these cues from the outside world and from other humans' behavior, and your your subconscious learns from that and will use that as a tool when it needs to. I hope that makes sense to you, but uh, I don't know if it came out quite uh, um, eloquent. But um, also, it should be said that when we are diagnosing someone with conversion disorder, we 
have to always be tentative because just because we can't identify a biological quote unquote cause of the paralysis or the blindness or whatever, doesn't mean that there isn't a biological cause. Now, some people say, you know, the mind is biological and if it's quote unquote causing the blindness or paralysis or numbness or whatever, then it is a biological cause. But I think you get what I'm saying. When someone comes into the hospital and they are paralyzed from the waist down and they can't find any nerve damage or any kind of uh, biological reason for it, then they will start wondering if it's psychogenic. And whenever we identify it, then again, we just have to be tentative because we, we just don't have the science to, to really understand and pinpoint things that, uh, things like this, you know, things like, uh, what do they call it? Um, chronic fatigue syndrome, these, these kinds of things. It's like it, it, these kinds of syndromes point to the fact that our science just isn't the, as good as it needs to be in order to really figure out what's happening for these people. And, uh, so, you know, uh, now when someone comes in like with patron Ryan's patient and they have a history of stress and you give them antidepressants and talk therapy and the paralysis goes away, then you can tentatively say they likely were suffering from conversion disorder, but it's unknown because the symptoms could have subsided just coincidentally with the, um, with the talk therapy and the antidepressants. So, so that's always uh, something that I think about when I think of conversion disorder. Having said that, I've never treated conversion disorder. It's not a very common thing, and it's not a common thing that someone like me would see in a private practice setting. So I'll just put that out there that I'm not an expert on it. But anyway, the history of conversion disorder is interesting, I think. So you have Jean Martin, uh, Martin, Jean Martin, I'm guessing, French guy, Charcot, neurologist, uh, late 1800s in Paris, I believe. Charcot, he specialized in treating patients who were suffering from conversion disorder, which was somewhat of a new field at the time. You know, psychology and um, all that stuff was emerging in the 1800s. Conversion disorder was also called hysteria at the time. And I could go into a long talk about the history of hysteria. It's actually really interesting. It goes back to, I think, the Greeks. And they thought that the uterus in women was moving around the body. And that, you know, hyster is the Greek word for uterus, you know, hysterectomy, that kind of thing. And so hysteria was like, there was the, the uterus was moving around. And so they had to like use different, they, they would try to coax the uterus back to the vagina by putting uh, nice smelling things by the woman's vagina and by putting, uh, uh, things that smelled bad by the woman's mouth and nose because it was trying to, uh, I guess, scare the the uterus back. I'm not even joking. This is this is this is true. And they believed that when women had psychological problems or symptoms of some sort, they that it was a problem with the uterus, and so they treated it this way. I, I just I just always wondered, like, how did they come up with that? You know, because it's not like. Oh, they did an autopsy and found that the woman's uterus was up by her throat. It's like they just had this idea that it, well, maybe it's moving around. It's so interesting. They also, I think, thought that women who uh, didn't ha- didn't get to have orgasm or weren't having enough orgasms that this led to hysteria, which you know I could almost understand to some extent. But uh, 
But anyway, so um, fast forward thousands of years to the 1800s in uh, Europe, and they're start they're they're using this hysteria word. I don't think they believed that it had anything to do with the uterus directly, but but they were still u- using that word. I think because it had been passed down through the generations again. But uh, okay, so Charcot was treating people with hysteria, uh, aka conversion disorder. And Freud came to Charcot in the before Freud was Freud. He was trying various different ways of furthering his career and, and not having much success. And then he comes across Charcot and observes Charcot uh, working with conversion disorder and and how Charcot believed that it was related to psychological stress and trauma. And Freud was like, well, it's brilliant. And then Freud began developing his own theory regarding trauma and how it led to psychological stress and, and how it led to somatic symptoms. Uh, incidentally, like he would later on, he would abandon this idea of trauma leading to psychological stress, but he was right. He, he, he was right in the beginning. He should have stuck with, because eventually it became all about, uh, sex and about suppression of urges to, have sex with your parents and you know it became quite odd honestly in in my opinion he started out great i think and then i don't know what happened along the way but uh the the freud's very interesting like when you study him he 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 was it's almost like he said everything that was ever going to be said about our field Uh, you know if if you're looking for if anything that is talked about today you can go back to Freud and, and find he he talked about it. He might have later uh, uh, he might have later refuted his own sayings later on, but but he had a long career of saying a lot of different things, and so it's just it's just interesting. Anyway, so Freud uh, then worked with uh, Anna O, the famous Anna O, with his mentor Joseph Breuer. Um, Anna O is the code name for Bertha Pappenheim. I've talked about this whole situation in other podcasts. I think about countertransference maybe, but anyway, Freud was working with his mentor Breuer and Breuer was treating Anna O or Bertha Pappenheim and experts now looking back at Bertha's uh, symptoms believe she was suffering from the stress of her father becoming ill and then her father dying. She was very close to her father and was taking care of her father as he was ill. And then when he died, it was, it was very stressful for her. And she developed a number, number of symptoms around this time, like the paralysis in parts of her body and troubles with her vision, troubles with her hearing, uh, troubles with speaking. And she would uh, become unconscious at times and she would also hallucinate. She, so she had a lot of different symptoms and it's, again, we have no way of knowing if she was converting. She might've been uh, suffering from some neurological uh, disorder of some kind, but it, but at the time, at least, and many people even today still believe that it was psychological stress that was leading to these things. And Breuer and Freud, you know, they thought, well, maybe it's hysteria or conversion disorder. And Breuer was desperately trying to help Pappenheim, Bertha Pappenheim, with with her stress and her symptoms. And over time, Breuer and Pappenheim discovered, they both discovered together, that when Pappenheim was given the chance to 
talk about her experience, her symptoms decreased. She described it as chimney sweeping. You know, she's sweeping the chimney of her brain. And she also referred to it as the talking cure. Now, presumably this is all in Austrian, so it's not the exact words. It's, you know, translated in English as chimney sweeping and talking cure. But this became the basis of the entire field of psychotherapy and counseling and marriage and family therapy was birthed in this, uh, in, in that time between Breuer, who was Freud's mentor and Bertha Pappenheim. And, and really you could attribute it to Pappenheim herself as the patient. She was just a a 21 year old kid who was, you know, stressed out, but she was the one who was telling her physician, Breuer, hey, you know, it's it's great when you just let me talk and you just listen to me. It actually really, it reduces my symptoms. Let's do more of that. And then Freud observed that. And then uh, Breuer and had a ton of countertransference and there was some erotic issues between the two of them. I don't, I don't think they ever had sex, but Pappenheim, I think, might have fallen in love with Breuer and the whole thing exploded. And then Breuer's wife forced Breuer to end the relationship with Pappenheim. And then Breuer said, that was so difficult. I quit the whole field of psychiatry. I don't, I don't want to do any, I don't want to do it anymore. And his, you know, so Breuer's very short lived career in talk therapy was, was with that. And then Freud observed all of that and learned from it and then used that as the basis of psychoanalysis, which became the basis of our entire field. So conversion disorder is a part of every, uh, is a part of the foundation of our field, which I think is very interesting. All right. Well, that does it for this episode of, of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. If you haven't already, please become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Go to our page, Psychology in Seattle, and pledge and when you do so, you get access to our premium premium episodes, and you also know that 20% of your pledge goes towards different charities that we support, so you, you know that you're doing a good thing for society. Okay, please take care of yourself out there because you deserve it, because you are deserving listeners.